Good evening, Mendocino County. My name is Michelle Hutchins. I'm the former County Superintendent of Schools, and I am your host for tonight's edition of Inside Education. Inside Education is the fourth Thursday of every month at this time, 7 p.m., and tonight we're going to discuss issues relating to bringing mental health professionals into schools and countering the impending influx of referrals for special education and assistance. I'm also going to be covering why young people need experiences that boost their mental health, why a positive relationship will not fix all of our classroom issues. We'll also be addressing some other barriers to learning and some solutions that can be put into place. Okay, to start us off, first I wanna cover the influx of referrals for special education and assistance. When we look at this time of year, most principals, school counselors are inundated with special education referrals. Educators have devoted careers to ensuring students with disabilities can access the same opportunities as their non-disabled peers. However, are students today that are pegged for evaluation, are they struggling due to disrupted learning or show trauma-related behaviors that are not actually connected to a disability? This is the question that we as educators need to decipher prior to giving students an individual education program or that specially designed instruction or related services. Amid all this data emerging about disruptions to student learning associated with COVID-19, are we as educators concerned that a tidal wave of referrals for special education services we're actually hearing the potential of one out of every three or four children is going to flood our nation's schools. These concerns are based on the anecdotes that we've heard in the course of our work. Colleagues report increasing referrals for evaluation due to behavioral challenges exacerbated by the trauma associated with the pandemic. At the same time, while many students undoubtedly require extra support, Many children identified for referrals may not actually have a disability, but rather are struggling due to disruptions in their learning. And it is the special educational professionals that need to make that determination. School districts must ensure that a lack of appropriate instruction in both reading and math and limited English proficiency are not the factors in referring children for special education. This is especially important under the specific learning disability tag or category, and this means that districts must address instructional loss for all students while reserving only the highly specialized instruction, services, and accommodations for students that have documented disabilities. Issuing a blanket referral for large numbers of children would not only create stress and anxiety for families as they navigate a complex and often contentious process, but also impose onerous procedural requirements on schools and districts for conducting timely evaluations, developing those individualized education programs, and providing robust specialized instruction. It would also have a tremendous impact on school staffing, funding, 
and academic performance. While most students with disabilities spend most of their day in general education classrooms, the specialized supports and services they need require specially trained teachers and related providers. Identifying more students as eligible for special education will impose an even more significant staffing challenge on our schools that are already struggling to recruit and retain these specialists. If our districts were able to find and hire those specialists, their costs would skyrocket. Providing special education and related services can actually double the cost of teaching a student. Historically, around 12.5% of students qualify for special education. The additional costs above that standard per pupil expenditure accounts for roughly 14% of the average district budget. In California, that might be a little higher. Just the costs. You might see more of an 18% in California. But increasing the proportion of students in special education from 12.5% even to 20% could mean a very large proportion of the district's budget ends up being allocated to those additional expenditures. Now, while our one-time money, we have one-time money that came through the pandemic, while it can provide some assistance, our districts will likely face a fiscal cliff when those dollars sunset, which basically is this next coming up school year. A very little of these one-time dollars or the K-12 public recovery funding has gone to support students with disabilities. There is very little evidence that our districts are using other kinds of relief dollars towards special education. If there is indeed a flood of special ed referrals, school budgets will be strained even more than they already are, and there will be insufficient funding to support the critical services that underpin students, individualized education programs. And so this scenario would cost, would most directly impact children who require significant support because it would drain the already thin system that supports students with disabilities. The last point I'd like to make is that special education eligibility is typically coupled with distressing and a steep drop in expectations and outcomes. Absent intentional actions to minimize over-identification, the pandemic will compound poor outcomes. Unfortunately, when students enter into the special education classroom, the expectations for those students drop. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've experienced it with my own children. While these predictions, I will say, are alarming, school leaders and policymakers can prevent this scenario from unfolding. There are things we can do to stem this tide of referrals. The California System of Support and California Department of Education recommend is to allocate your one-time stimulus dollars with a laser focus on robust student assessments. Know what students know and what they don't know so that you can put the attention on where the point of confusion is for students on learning English and math 
and focus solely in those areas instead of having students repeat large swaths of the curriculum, which may or may not address their learning need. Second, ensure that evaluations refer children for special education services only when there's an actual disability. You need to ensure, and it is on the district to ensure this, that the primary cause of the learning challenge is not a lack of instruction or English language proficiency. This is especially important for our English language learners. A data point that has been tracked for many years in California is that when English language learners are placed into special education, specifically specific learning disability category, those students' learning gap throughout the time of their school career does not close. It only widens. Another element, ensure that all of the one-time dollars that we are using for instruction, personnel training, or direct student services go only towards practices that we know work. Let's use the systems that are data-driven and research-based. Universal design for learning and multiple-tiered system of support. These evidence-based practices facilitate access to the general education curriculum for students with disabilities. For students that are struggling with their learning but don't have disabilities, it works for them too. I will explain a little more on those a little later in the program. Now, we also want to look at really doubling down on our early childhood interventions and expand the time frame beyond three years when these are typically offered. What I mean by that is if a student at age four is still struggling with reading or math or even appropriate school behavior, there's no harm in having an, someone who is skilled with early childhood interventions to provide the intervention for those students. Expanding and enhancing training for all educators in inclusive and differentiated practices like, I'm going to sound like a broken record, universal design for learning, who evidence-based and flexible approaches enable educators to anticipate learner variability in the general education classroom. It's super important that we keep students in the general education classroom. Another element to our multiple systems of support is your positive behavior intervention and supports and or any other, you some often hear of restorative practices, other evidence-based programs that are designed specifically to address childhood traumas and underlying causes of inappropriate school behaviors. It's important to train staff to effectively reduce and eliminate exclusionary disciplinary practices and continuously monitor outcomes for trends that indicate a breakdown of the effectiveness of the interventions the school's putting in. This is Michelle Hutchins. You're listening to Inside Education. Tonight, we are discussing issues relating to the impending influx of referrals for special education and assistance and what schools can do to proactively address this issue. What is universal design for learning? Universal design for learning is a framework to improve and optimize teaching and learning for all people based on scientific insights into how humans learn. 
there is an established set of guidelines that can be used as a tool in the implementation of universal design for learning. These guidelines offer a set of concrete suggestions that can be applied to any discipline or domain, learning domain, to ensure that all learners can access and participate in meaningful, challenging learning opportunities. We have very specific guidelines and I can play a video that talks about UDL at a glance. So let's play this and see what we get. This teacher needs to meet a curriculum goal and she's got a very diverse group of students. And so does this teacher. And this one. Most do. In fact, research shows that the way people learn is as unique as their fingerprints. What does this mean for teachers of today? Classrooms are highly diverse and curriculum needs to be designed from the start to meet this diversity. Universal Design for Learning is an approach to curriculum that minimizes barriers and maximizes learning for all students. Whoa, that's a fancy term. Universal Design for Learning. Let's unpack it a bit. Let's think about the word universal. By universal, we mean curriculum that can be used and understood by everyone. Each learner in a classroom brings her own background, strengths, needs, and interests. Curriculum should provide genuine learning opportunities for each and every student. Now let's think about the word learning. Learning is not one thing. Neuroscience tells us that our brains have three broad networks. One for recognition, the what of learning. One for skills and strategies, the how of learning. And one for caring and prioritizing, the why of learning. Students need to gain knowledge, skills, and enthusiasm for learning, and a curriculum needs to help them do all three. But every learner is unique, and one size does not fit all. So how do we make a curriculum that challenges and engages diverse learners? This is where the word design comes in. A universally designed building is planned to be flexible and to accommodate all kinds of users, with and without disabilities. It turns out that if you design for those in the margins, your building works better for everyone. Curb cuts and ramps are used by people in wheelchairs, people with strollers, and people on bikes. Captioning on TV serves people who are deaf, people learning English, people in gyms, and spouses who get to sleep at different times. UDL takes this idea and applies it to the design of flexible curriculum. UDL goes beyond access because we need to build in support and challenge. So how do we use the UDL framework to make learning goals, methods, materials, and assessments that work for everyone? First, ask yourself, what is my goal? What do I want my students to know, do, and care about? Then ask, what barriers in the classroom might interfere with my diverse students reaching these goals? To eliminate the barriers, use the three UDL principles to create flexible paths to learning so that each student can progress. Number one, provide multiple means of representation. Present content and information in multiple media and provide varied supports. Use graphics and animation, highlight the critical features, activate background knowledge, 
and support vocabulary so that students can acquire the knowledge being taught. Number two, provide multiple means of action and expression. Give students plenty of options for expressing what they know and provide models, feedback, and supports for their different levels of proficiency. Number three, provide multiple means of engagement. What fires up one student won't fire up another. Give students choices to fuel their interests in autonomy. Help them risk mistakes and learn from them. If they love learning, they will persist through challenges. And remember, always keep in mind the learning goal. Get rid of barriers caused by the curriculum and keep the challenge where it belongs. And that's it. Okay, quick recap. Show the information in different ways. Allow your students to approach learning tasks and demonstrate what they know in different ways and offer options that engage students and keep their interest. Universal design for learning equals learning opportunities for all. For more information on UDL, go to www.cast.org. That might have been a little more detail than everyone wanted, but I feel it's pretty important for people to understand what the universal design for learning process is, because this works. The other thing that I've talked a lot about was multiple tiered systems of support. The reason multiple tiered systems of support is so important is because oftentimes there's a misconception that a positive relationship that a teacher has with her classroom or his classroom is the sole reason a student will behave or misbehave. And that another common misperception is that teachers who have a high level of referrals coming out of their classrooms, behavior referrals coming from their classrooms, have relationship issues with their students. I want to talk a little bit about this because for most teachers, the teacher-student bond is the best part of the job. We engage with our students by investing in their strengths, weaknesses, interests, and aspirations. A lot can be said about that intimate dynamic, especially regarding its influence on the classroom environment and the learning experience. However, and this is a big however, the increasingly popular notion that a solid teacher-student relationship can solve anything and everything is simply unreasonable, and it can even be damaging to our profession. A brand new teacher who can't control a class and is not given a mentor or administrative support is not a relationship issue. This notion is glaringly misguided. Certainly, there are issues that a strong relationship can help, but there are also issues that it can't. And so let's look at that and break that down. A positive teacher-student relationship can improve boosting esteem, enhancing engagement, and increasing cooperation. However, a positive teacher-student relationship cannot undo the effects of poverty, trauma, and poor school funding or resource issues. Obviously, there's a distinction here. So to look at these lists and determine that, yes, a single person can solve each issue through some bonding obviously is plainly inaccurate, but it's impossible yet that we expect it of teachers. And that essentially is where our problem lies. 
when we routinely dismiss legitimate issues as a flawed teacher-student relationship, then everyone loses. It, it creates a cycle in which students don't get the support they need, everyone is discouraged, and the problem persists. The last thing our education systems obviously needs is more unmet needs, especially for students or for teachers. We need our leaders in education to be more informed and far more realistic about the impacts of the classroom in 2022. And part of that remains in humanizing teachers instead of expecting them to do the impossible. The reality is, is that poverty, trauma, and school funding issues are too immense for a single school or teacher to solve. Pointing fingers and casting blame does nothing to help the situation and only fuels this unsustainable cycle. So we need to focus essentially on small victories and positive impacts without being expected to solve the world's injustices. But we can do a lot of things. Teachers can do a lot of things, but they can't do everything. And that's basically what needs to be understood. That's where school leaders need to create systems to support teachers. And that's where the multiple tiered system of support center comes in. Since 2007, the multiple tiered system of support center has been a national leader in supporting districts and schools across the country in implementing this framework that integrates data and instruction within multiple level prevention system that maximizes student achievement and support, especially around social, emotional, and behavioral needs from really a strengths-based perspective. So essentially what you're doing is you're using data to screen students. You're ensuring that your data sets, oh, let's see, let me give you a better snapshot of that. So how this works, to put it into play, at established benchmark periods or established periods, schools screen all students to evaluate their level of risk and respond to that data to ensure that each student receives the level of support they need. For students receiving targeted and intensive interventions, schools will conduct a progress monitoring to evaluate their effectiveness of the level of support provided and determine if changes are needed. Critical to successful implementation is evaluating the overall efficiency and effectiveness of the process. In doing so, schools can then improve their implementation through this interactive process. We're looking at school climate, we're looking at including social emotional learning, we're training teachers on trauma-informed care, and we're essentially improving the school environment. You can find more information on multiple tiered system of support uh, from the Center on Multiple Tiered System of Support website at the American Institute of Research. That is mtss4success.org. So that is mtss, the number four, the word success.org. Going back to the impending tidal wave of special education referrals, the other area that it would most significantly impact is, of course, our staffing. We already have a shortage of special education educators in this county, 
and to increase special education referrals would only stress the already taxed system that we have. Educating students with special needs should definitely be a top priority. Yet, our critical shortages of special education teachers and the specialized instructional support personnel exist really within all regions of our country and especially in the county of Mendocino. The demand for these highly qualified professionals is increasing at a time when our Bureau of Labor Statistics indicates that these shortages are acute nationwide. These shortages, as well as unfunded positions, impede the ability of students with disabilities to reach their full academic potential and really hinders the work of our districts to prepare all of our students to be college and career ready. What are some reasons that these personnel shortages exist? What does our nation look at when we think about personnel shortages in special education? Result of recruitment and retention challenges. There's both a shortage of professionals to fill available positions and a shortage of positions to meet the growing demand for services with America's 6 million children and youth with disabilities who receive special education services. Some of our challenges include We have poor working conditions for special educators, which lead to professionals leaving special education. There's a lot of paperwork. There's unmanageable caseloads and workloads. And we have inadequate support in in the sense that a lot of our professionals have to work in isolation. We have insufficient funding for incentivizing programs designed to entice new graduate students and support them as they gain professional training such as loan forgiveness programs, personal preparation grants. We have fewer qualified faculty and increasingly higher education costs. So it's harder for our teachers to get the specialized training to become special education personnel. There's also a limited supply of qualified professionals willing to work in certain communities, such as our rural and high poverty areas of our county. We also have credentialing barriers in some states, such as California, that limit opportunities for re-specialization or re-licensure or alternative routes to licensure of otherwise qualified personnel. Our state has reduced some of the barriers here, but not all. And we could work a little stronger in reducing many of those other barriers, especially with teachers coming from other states. The national ratio of school psychologists is twice the recommended ratio, which is one psychologist for every five to 700 students whereas the actual national ratio is one school psychologist to every 1,182 students. It is twice the recommended ratio. Further, there will be a shortage of almost 15,000 school psychologists in the United States by 2020. It's predicted. The national ratio of students to school counselors is 482 students for every counselor, is almost twice the recommended ratio, which is 250 students for every counselor. In our large schools, 
in Mendocino County, you will see approximately 400 students to every counselor. Um, oftentimes, our smaller schools, they're lucky if they have a counselor in our smaller districts. Um, our smaller districts that have counselors generally only have one for the whole district. What's interesting is that 49 states of our 50 states report a shortage of special education teachers and in their related service personnel. 82% of special educators from across the nation report that there are not enough professionals to meet the needs of students with disabilities. This is Michelle Hutchins. You're listening to Inside Education. Tonight we are discussing issues relating to bringing mental health professionals into schools, countering the impending influx of referrals for special education and, and assistance, as well as other relevant information for parents and school personnel as it pertains to special education or mental health in schools. When we look at an impending tidal wave of special ed referrals, coupled with a drop in outcomes that we see in special education for students that that receive special education services, and then add to it the intense struggles our nation is having keeping a special education workforce that is adequate to meet the current needs of special education of students receiving special education services, it is essential that we rethink the way in which we provide student and learning supports. This brings me to the second part or the second half of what today's topic is or tonight's topic is, and that is really talking about mental health supports in schools. I was recently invited to be on a panel of experts relating to mental health in schools for the Community Foundation's board, governing board. Uh, One of the questions that was asked of the panel is, are we funding the right things? Is the money that we're putting out there supporting the true needs in Mendocino County? I wasn't able to answer that board member's question that day because the question really caused me to pause and reflect on what really needs to happen in Mendocino County to truly meet the needs of all of our students and work collectively and collaboratively with the other agencies that support student mental health and behavioral health so that we reduce redundancy, increase efficiency, and essentially work together in a way that is much more than just bringing more services, mental health services, onto school campuses. Currently, all of our school districts have implementation grants for what is known as Community School Initiative from the state of California. This is an important initiative from the governor. If done right, has the ability to transform the delivery services of support to our students. However, my fear is that most schools will look at this as an opportunity to simply provide 
more of the same of what we've been doing year after year, which is simply to open our doors to our partners to provide services to students on our campuses. While this is a good step, it's a good first step of collaboration, it doesn't solve the true issues our county faces. The problems encountered by students and schools are complex and overlapping. The number of students not doing well at school is staggering, especially in Mendocino County. For too long, it's been clear that student learning supports as they currently operate cannot meet the need in many of our schools. School budgets are always tight. Cost effectiveness is a constant concern. In some schools, principals report that up to 25% of their budget is consumed in efforts to address barriers to learning. Analysis of current approaches indicate extremely limited results, redundancy in resource use, and counterproductive competition among support staff and with community-based professionals who work in our schools. We see this every day. Efforts to improve student learning supports have been the focus of policy reports and special initiatives everywhere. Of specific and particular concern for me in our county is this. The work done by multiple agencies around student mental health is not guided by an agreed upon vision. There is no unified approach to addressing the barriers of teaching and learning between support agencies and schools as well as from school to school in our county, as well as from school to county office. Second, student learning support personnel are organized in ways that generate fragmented and overly specialized programs and services and counterproductive competition for very sparse resources. It is how we have organized our student learning support personnel. The fact that we have a SELPA or a special education local plan area that is in our state, that is a separate path from county offices of education is one example because California is unique in that. Most states train do all teacher training through their county offices or the likely of the, 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 the thing that they state has its like county offices um, and do not have a separate identical track for professionals working with students with disabilities. So just the fact that that separation exists really creates that over-specialization. Another fact is that student support staff tend to function in relative isolation of each other and other stakeholders. With a great deal of the work oriented to discrete problems and with an over-reliance on specialized services for individuals and very small groups. And I will say that while resources are sparse, 
too little of the available resources are used for systemic improvements. We're not looking at our schools as systems. And lastly, our current policies and practices that promote school community home collaboration are very limited in focus. It benefits relatively few schools and often exacerbates fragmentation of efforts and again, that competition of very sparse resources and are not designed in ways that facilitate replication to scale. So how do we end this marginalization of student learning supports? How do we end it? Truly, increasing concern about the fragmented approaches has produced calls for coordination and integration of interventions, often with an emphasis on improving the linkages between the school and community services. We call it wraparound services, we call it integrated services, and most recently, you'll see the term integrated support systems. These calls for integrating the student learning supports and increasing school community home collaboration are certainly warranted and needed. However, the folk to focus primarily on that fragmentation, policymakers and school improvement advocates are failing to deal with a core underlying problem. This emphasis on integrated supports has limited impact on improving equity of policies related to the supports. Sorry. Emphasis on integrating supports has limited impact on improving equity of opportunity for students because it fails to deal with ending the marginalization in policies related to such supports. So let's look at that a little deep, deeply. What I'm trying to say is that what drives fragmentation is the marginalization in school improvement policy of efforts to address barriers to learning and teaching in a direct unified, comprehensive, and equitable way. Ending the marginalization rather than focusing on integrating student supports is essential to effectively improve how schools respond to learning behavior and emotional problems. We're mainly guided by a two component framework which stresses instruction, and then we have our governance and management. Interventions for addressing learning barriers and re-engaging disconnected students are given secondary consideration at best. This is the marginalization I'm talking about, and it's a fundamental cause of the widely observed fragmentation and disorganization of student and learning supports. Ending this marginalization requires expanding the prevailing school improvement policy framework from a two to a three component framework for school improvement. So when we look at it, we, we look at the components that focus directly and systematically on addressing barriers to learning and teaching. 
So what is this third component? The third component requires rethinking and redeployment of existing resources. It includes strategic collaboration to weave school-owned resources and community-owned resources together. Okay, typically schools do two components, instruction and governance management. What we're talking about today is creating a new component that's called learning supports and continuing or really looking at redeploying, rethinking and redeploying the existing resources. This, I'm going to repeat myself again, including strategic collaboration to weave school-owned resources and community-owned resources together. Because the bottom line, Mendocino County, is that if we continue with the status quo, it's a recipe for ensuring the necessary supports remain unavailable to our students, our families, and our staff in way too many schools. Once a three-component framework is developed, your aim or our aim over the several years is to develop that unified component into a comprehensive equitable system. It's been done in other communities. What's been done in other communities is a system that is dedicated to addressing barriers to learning and teaching while re-engaging disconnected students. This emphasis on engagement is super important. Systems that do not ensure students are engaged meaningfully in classroom learning usually are insufficient in sustaining over time student involvement, good behavior, and effective learning at school. This is Michelle Hutchins with Inside Education. Tonight we're discussing processes schools can do in order to reorganize how learning supports are provided to students. Integrating multiple tiered system of support has limitations, but is a move in the right direction. It is widely adopted in most of our schools and can readily be built upon. It is, however, only a first step in developing a unified, comprehensive, an equitable approach to student learning supports. A prototype framework for student learning supports that can guide an expansion of multiple tiered system of supports is provided by the UCLA Center for Mental Health in Schools. It gives us a framework that combines classroom and school-wide supports into an interconnected continuum of subsystems that weaves school and community resources together with organized domains of student learning and supports. This is available online, like I said, at the University of California, Los Angeles Center for Mental Health in Schools. They have very specific exhibits and frameworks that can walk schools through how to make this expansion into your community. It lists in a matrix what schools may already be using 
and gives illustrative examples on a wide range of other student learning supports. It also encompasses the work of specialized instructional support personnel, compens compensatory and special education efforts, and programs for English language learners and homeless students, and interventions for psychosocial mental health and learning problems. It's a very robust tool. With all the criticisms of public schools, policymakers have difficult choices to make about improving schools. Who are our policymakers? Our policymakers start with our governor, our legislature, and our local school board members. Your local school board members have a lot of power when it comes to setting policy in our local schools. Ultimately, the choices made by our local policymakers will affect not only students and school staff, but our entire society. Choosing to continue with old ways of thinking about student learning supports is a recipe for maintaining the achievement and opportunity gaps we currently have. Unifying available resources and starting a process to develop a comprehensive, an equitable system of learning supports over the coming years is an alternative. And it is actually how I wanted to answer the board member who asked the question during the panel at the Community Foundation, the panel on mental health in schools, when I was asked, are we spending, is the Community Foundation funding the right things? Establishing a comprehensive and equitable intervention system for addressing barriers to learning and teaching and re-engaging disconnected students requires coalescing ad hoc and piecemeal policies and practices. Doing so will help end the fragmentation of student and learning supports and related system disorganization and will provide a foundation for weaving together whatever a school has with whatever a community is doing to confront barriers to learning and teaching. How to do this in this community is the question. Effectively designed and developed, if we add just that third bubble to all of our school's frameworks, and we effectively design and develop at each school a learning supports component to increase supports for all students. The emphasis should be on unifying student and learning supports by grouping the many fragmented approaches experienced at schools in ways that reduce the number of separate and sometimes redundant intervention responses to overlapping problems. Let's talk about what an effectively designed and developed learning support com component would look like. That component would be unifying student and learning supports by grouping the many fragmented approaches experienced at school in ways that reduce the number of separate and sometimes redundant intervention responses to overlapping problems. It would have an emphasis on addressing barriers to learning and teaching by improving personalized instruction and increasing accommodations and special assistance when necessary. And it would enhance, it would focus on enhancing 
enhancing the focus on motivational considerations with a special emphasis on intrinsic motivation as it relates to individual readiness and ongoing involvement with the intent of fostering intrinsic motivation as a basic outcome. It would focus on re-engaging disconnected students, and it would add specialized remediation, treatment, and rehabilitation as necessary, but only as necessary. In doing all of this, a learning supports component enhances equity of opportunity, plays a major role in improving student and school performance, and promotes whole child development, fosters positive school community relationships, minimizes the school's reliance on social control practices, and contributes to the emergence of a positive school climate. And it fully embeds interventions to address mental health concerns. Implementation of a unified, comprehensive, and equitable system of learning supports as a primary school improvement component is essential to the focus on whole child, whole school, and whole community, including fostering safe schools and the emergence of a positive school climate. Properly implemented, the component increases the likelihood that schooling will be experienced as a welcoming, supportive experience that accommodates diversity, prevents problems, enhances youngsters' strengths, and is committed to assuming equity of opportunity for all students to succeed. Ultimately, improving student and learning support significantly requires not only a vision for how to better address barriers to learning and teaching, but a way to get there from where we are. The mechanisms that constitute our infrastructures are critical drivers for effective implementation and system change. And the reality is that the current operational infrastructure at all levels requires major reworking. To provide prototypes to guide strengthening current operational infrastructures. So one of the things that that potentially the Community Foundation or maybe even Mendocino County Office of Education could help the county do is to bring together a group of interested stakeholders as a work group and proceed to map our existing resources being used to address barriers to learning and teaching and re-engage disconnected students. With respect to the available data on needs, they could then analyze what's working, what requires strengthening, and what critical gaps exist at a county level. Identify immediate priorities for moving forward with improvement and system development as it pertains to our schools. Develop a set of prioritized recommendations for moving towards a unified, comprehensive, and equitable system of student learning supports, and then develop and implement that plan to build readiness and commitment among the key stakeholders for moving forward. Once that work is done, you then have prioritized recommendations that can be approved by the appropriate authorities. Then we can appoint a high-level steering group to champion and monitor the work. 
We appoint an administrative leader for system development. We establish a development team to work with that administrative lead. We establish an operational infrastructure designed to ensure effective planning, initial implementation, capacity building, formative evaluation, and ongoing development. And lastly, expand that formative evaluation and accountability indicators. But really, firstly, we need to start with establishing that interested group of stakeholders as a work group. And that's the biggest start that we can make in making these large changes. So to conclude on these thoughts, the COVID-19 pandemic and the growing concerns about social justice mark a turning point for how schools, families, and communities address student learning supports. Those adopting the prevailing multiple-tiered system of support framework have made a start, as have the initiatives for community schools, integrated student supports, and school-based health centers. Given the growing challenges, however, schools need to develop and implement a more transformative and comprehensive approach. There is a guide that can help, and that guide is published by UCLA Center for Mental Health in Schools. I know from experience how hard it is to achieve policy and practice changes in a district. And given the scale of public education, the degree of transformative system change proposed today in this show gives rise to many complications. For example, this approach calls for a major reworking of the operational and organizational infrastructure for a school, the family of schools, and the district, as well as for the school-family-community collaboration. It also calls for enhancing in-classroom supports by retooling what our one-time funds label as specialized instructional support personnel. In particular, the jobs of these personnel need to be modified to include to work collaboratively with regular teachers in classrooms. We no longer should have student and learning support personnel where psychologists, counselors, social workers, nurses, Title I staff, special educators, our dropout graduation support staff, all of these individualized, somewhat fragmented supports in schools need to be in our classrooms. They need to be working collaboratively with regular teachers in classrooms for at least part of every day. Improving student and learning supports in classrooms requires such collaboration, which is essential to ending the myths and expectations that teachers can do it all and do it alone, as I was talking about earlier. Certainly, the challenges are daunting especially when folks are caught up in the day-by-day pressures of their current roles and functions. Everyone is so busy doing that there seems to be no time to introduce better ways. Well, let's just be reminded of Winnie the Pooh, who was always going down the stairs 
bump, bump, bump on his head behind Christopher Robbins. He's come to think it is the only way to go down the stairs. Still, he wonders whether there might be a better way if he could only stop bumping long enough to figure it out. Since maintaining the status quo in my mind is untenable and just doing more tinkering will not meet the need, I hope that our schools will go and read the guide, the National Initiative for Transforming Student Learning Supports that's been developed by our Center for Mental Health in Schools from UCLA so that we can stop bumping our heads and we can set some time aside for taking the first steps to move in new directions for our schools. And remember that the Center for Mental Health in Schools continues to provide free online mentoring, coaching, and technical assistance for schools and school leaders. I'd like to give a plug for the upcoming science fair, Mendocino County Office of Education is holding their science and engineering fair this March 18 from 10 to 4 p.m. at Mendocino College. If you're interested in helping out at this year's science fair, they're always looking for adults to assist um, with the production of science fair. Uh, you can contact Science Fair 2023 at mcoe.us. Again, that's Science Fair 2023 at mcoe.us. Science Fair is this. The countywide Science Fair will be March 18 from 10 to 4 at Mendocino College. That concludes our show tonight. My name is Michelle Hutchins, your former county superintendent of schools. It's been my pleasure to share with you some thoughts tonight relating to mental health and countering influx of special education referrals. Have a good evening, Mendocino County. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.